In this week's parsha, we have the unfortunate incident of an Isha Sota, a woman who is unfaithful. Her husband suspects her of being promiscuous. Her husband warns her in front of Adam, do not go into Caesar, do not go into a hidden place with such and such man. And in fact, she violates that warning and she's brought to Beisdin. Now there's no proof, but there certainly is what's called Raglayim Ladova. It looks very, very suspicious. Husband warned her not to go into seclusion with this particular gentleman. She was seen in seclusion with that person. <coughs> She's brought to the Kohen, to the base of Mikdash. The Kohen takes the name of Hashem, takes the entire parsha of Sota, <coughs> scrapes it into a glass of water, mixes it. <coughs> she drinks this May Sota. If, in fact, she's innocent and she was not improper, then she gets a bracha. If she couldn't have children before, she'll have children. If she had difficulty giving birth, she'll have an easy time. However, if she was guilty of having an affair while she was married, then in fact she will die on the spot in a very gruesome manner. And this is the Parsha of Sota, an entire Parsha brought in the Torah. Now what's very interesting to note is that when the Torah describes it, Ish ish kitiste ishto, if a man will suspect his wife, but the problem is the Posuk uses an expression that's rather unusual, uses instead of drink, it, instead of suspicion, it uses the word tishte, and the shorish of it is shin teshe, and it really doesn't make much sense in context over here, and it really doesn't fit. Explains Rashi, that's where Chazal learned out from, ein amnafim nofim, the adulterers will not commit adultery, until a wind of insanity enters them. The word tishte, tough shin teshe, <coughs> The shorish of it, the root is shota shin tov hey, and what that teaches shota is an insane person. The menafim, the adulterers, will not commit adultery until a wave of insanity enters them. And again, that's where Chazal learned that a person has to have a ruach shtus to do such an avera. The siftei chachamim, one of the commentaries in Rashi, is bothered by a question: If you're telling me an adulterer will not commit such a crime until a wave of insanity enters him, if he's insane, he's not culpable. If he's not fully cognitive, if he's not fully alert and aware, he's not held responsible. So how could it be a Ruach Shtus? Explains the Sivtei Chomim, that's not what the Torah is saying. The Torah is not saying a wave of insanity, it's like insanity. She Yitzram Hara Morelam Heter. And their Yitzhahara teaches them a Heter. The Yitzhahara tells them it's permitted. So no adulterer will ever commit an act of adultery until the Yitzhahara is Morelam Heter, tells them it's permitted, gives them a rationale, gives them an excuse. Now, I'd like to stop for a minute on this expression, Mora Heter. When you go to a Mora Hara, when you go to a Rav, when you go to a Dayan, <coughs> he's a Mora Hara. He is one who paskins Allah. He tells you the ways of the Torah. Torah are ways, directives. Heter is permitted. A Mora Heter <coughs> is a logic why this is permitted. It's a Hara. It's a Psak why this act is permitted. So listen carefully what Rashi is telling us then. An adulterer will not commit an act of adultery unless his Yetzirah teaches him that it is permitted. Says to him, this act is not forbidden, it's permitted. Not a rationalization, not like, come on, you're in a bad mood, you, you know, but rather this act is permitted. And I'd like to ask what this Rashi is telling us and see if we could better understand it. Because let's sort of focus on either side. Let's imagine we have, we'll call it scenario number one. <clears throat> we have a very modest woman, a very proper, very tsunua a very from woman. And she got into a bad marriage and year after year and he was abusive and horrible and it really, really, really got him. And she had a very, very rough time. Finally, somehow she meets somebody and she's very modest, but somehow they meet and begin a conversation and begin seeing each other, not really attempt, but somehow in a fit of passion, she ends up with this man. How is it possible that the Yetzirah is going to tell her it's permitted? She's a from woman. She knows the Torah. The Torah says it's forbidden. It's Eshazish, <coughs> it's Skila. How could she possibly think that it's permitted? Well, well maybe the Torah was given on, on Shabbos, and today's Tuesday. There's no way that there could be a Morehet. There's no way that the Yetzirah could tell her this is permitted. So if we're not dealing with a Tznua, maybe it's time we deal with Prutza, a woman who's promiscuous, a woman who doesn't care, she's not religious, not, doesn't care. <coughs> if that's true, I have a much more simple question. What does she need a Morehet for? If she doesn't care about the Torah, doesn't care about the world to come, I'm doing what I want because I don't care because I'm doing it. So on either side, this Rashi is rather perplexing. 
Rashi is giving us a klal, a rule, no adulterer, none, on either side of the spectrum, will commit an act of adultery until the Yetzirah tells them it's permitted. The problem is, if they really are from proper Jews, they'll never believe a morahetah, because it's not permitted. You can't tell me this act is permitted. And if they don't really care about the Torah, they don't need the heter. And what in the world does this mean? And understanding this Rashi is rather perplexing. And to do that, I'd like to focus on a phenomenon in human nature. Have you ever read a novel and gotten pulled into the story? Or maybe you've gone to the theater, you saw the actors up there, and you were engaged in it. Now it's very interesting because when you're really engaged in the story, it feels so real. And when you're reading what's happening to that actor, you're reading what's happening to that person in the story, if he goes back home and finds so-and-so dead, and he's mourning, you feel yourself pulled along with it. Or if he's walking down the street, and he gets jumped, and he punches, and he kicks, if you take your pulse right then, you'll see your heart is racing. And somehow it is that you get very, very into the story. There is, in acting, a number of different facets. There's the actor, and there's the director, and then there's something called the casting director. Now, I'd like to share with you one of the most difficult jobs in Hollywood, one of the most difficult jobs in theater, is a casting director. The casting director is the person who's going to choose the actor who's not just believable, but the actor with whom the average person can identify. You see, the whole strength of the story relies on one facet, that when that hero is walking down the street, it's not he that's getting jumped, it's me. That when he is that pirate on the sea <clears throat> with his swashbuckled knife coming out in the fight, it's not he that's fighting off, it's I that's fighting off the enemy, because any casting director is rated by the criteria, how believable is the actor, how much can people identify with him. And this is a rather curious thing, what we call imagination. And if you think about this feature called imagination in the person, it's very, very powerful and very profound. The strength of imagination is that it can take something completely, utterly fiction that never happened, that never was, and make it feel real. But not just pull me into the story, and make it feel like I'm there, make it feel like it's happening to me in real time. Now this call called dimyon or imagination is a very important feature that Hashem created in the world for a specific purpose. And that is to give us free will. <clears throat> of the entire cosmos, the only creature, the only entity that has Bechira as we do <clears throat> is man. Only man has the type of Bechira that we have. Now make no mistake, there are many other entities that have free will. But the free will that they have is different than ours. So for instance, there are entire groups of malachim, many, many groups of malachim, many, many <coughs> hundreds, thousands of groups, each containing millions and millions of angels within them. Every one of them have free will. Every one of them can listen to Hashem or not listen to Hashem. But there's a very stark difference between their free will and our free will. And the simplest way I have to illustrate that is something I used to say to the guys in my high school share. I would always... I'd say, let's imagine I pulled out a $100 bill. And I'm holding this $100 bill. And I say to you, I will give you this bill if you put your hand in a fire for one minute. All you got to do is put your hand in a fire for one minute, keep it there, and this $100 bill is yours. Now, invariably, the guys would ask me, what about $50 for, for 30 seconds, uh, 25 for 50 Okay, I guarantee you wouldn't put your hand in a fire not for not for $100, not for, not for $10,000, for any amount of money in the world. You will not put your hand in a fire. Why? Because it's self-inflicted damage. It's foolish. It's, it's absurd. You would never do it. A malach has full free will. A malach could listen to Hashem or disobey Hashem. But the problem is that a malach also understands things with absolute clarity. A malach sees things with such understanding that it recognizes that every mitzvah that Hashem gives us is for our good, the good of the world in general. Every aver, everything Hashem warns us about, is dangerous, damaging to us, damaging to the world around us. The difference between us and a malach is a malach sees with absolute clarity the ramifications, the results. Much like I have free will to put my hand in a fire, but I never would do it. I could do it, but I never would. And that's not 
the free will that man has. The free will that man has is a free will that actually means you could go left and you could go right. You could just as easily do this and just as easily do that. And the reason why Hashem created us that way is because that is the purpose in creation. Hashem took me, a pure neshama, from under the Kisya covered, put me into this body to give me a chance to do that which every one of us were given the chance to do, and that is to grow, to accomplish, to become the great individuals we're supposed to be. But you see, how do you become great? How do you change? How do you rise above? It has to be a challenge. If we were created with the same clarity of vision as were a malach, of course we do everything right, do everything proper, I'd be kind and sweet and nice and good, and noble and, and absolutely righteous. But it wasn't a choice. It was so clear, so obvious, of course I would do it. So in no sense was I challenged, in no sense did I grow, did I change, did I make myself, and in no sense could I be credited for that result of what I would be. To allow man to be credited for the work that he does, Hashem had to give man free will, where it's just as easy to go left, just as easy to go right. That means it has to be just as easy to live a life of purpose and meaning as it is to squander your life. It has to be just as easy to be giving and other-centered as it is to be a selfish lout. Only then, in that circumstance, when I could just as easily go this way, just as easily go that way, if I choose, and time after time I choose correctly, I'm shaping myself, I'm molding myself, I'm making myself into what I can be, at that point I'm credited with that self-growth, I'm credited with making myself, and for eternity I benefit from those choices that I made. But here was the great difficulty. A neshama is extremely pure. A neshama is so brilliant in understanding that it sees things as clearly as does a malach. And before I was put into this body, I understood with absolute clarity of vision exactly that which every malach understands. That Hashem is present in every molecule of physicality, in every abstract part of this world, in anything that exists. Hashem is there keeping it in constant existence. And more than that, Hashem is the ultimate native, the ultimate giver. And therefore anything that Hashem directed us in is for our benefit because Hashem loves us, Hashem wants our good. So the neshama in its pure sense, when it was under the kisya covered, under the throne of glory, before I was put into this body, had no real bechira, no free will. Why? Of course it would do everything right, good and proper. First of all, Hashem is right here. And second of all, Hashem loves me, only wants my best, told me to do this. Of course I'm going to do this. Damage myself? What am I going to drink bleach? What am I going to put my hand in fire? And to give man actual free will, two things had to happen. Number one, Hashem put us into this body. But this body is not just like a robot. It's not like we occupy this robot and tell the arms and legs to move. And this body has a nefesh abahami, and that nefesh abahami has all of the drives, instincts, and inclinations as any animal in the wild kingdom. We've discussed this a number of times. If you go into the wild kingdom, you'll see that every single animal in the wild kingdom has a nature, has the inclinations, has the drive to keep itself alive. The robin hungers for the worm. The cat hungers for the mouse. The robin doesn't say, based on the general availability as well as the nutrients of all, I think I'll use the earthworm as my staple of diet. It naturally hungers for the worm. Given all the aptitude, given all the kalim, all the tools necessary, given the inclination, every animal was given the ability to feed itself, to protect itself, and to bring about the next generation. But it wasn't just given the tools into its nefesh abahami, imprinted into its nefesh, all of the instincts, all of the desires. And you could find this time after time. Animals have, sometimes we get anthropomorphic, we call it personalities. But if you own a dog, you know that various dogs are very, very different in their behavior, in their attachment, in their loyalty. Some dogs are actually nasty, they're dangerous. Some are very loyal. And in fact, if you have a loyal pet, the pet will do anything for you. And many, many stories of examples where a dog will give up its life for its master... And there is a certain sort of something in that dog. That something is a nefesh, it's alive. It's not an ashama, but it's a live, vibrant part. That part has all the instincts, all the desires put into the dog to keep it alive. As every animal in the wild kingdom has a nefesh abahami, as an animal soul, so too does man. Hashem put into this body a nefesh abahami, an animal soul, with all of the instincts and desires to keep 
me alive, as well as bring along the next generation. If you know how a person lives, everything comes really by instinct, eating, sleeping. Everything is really inner drives within the person because the Nefesh Bahami has been imprinted with all of the instincts needed to survive. Hashem took an Hashem, put it into this body, and now the two are mixed together. The Nefesh Bahami and the Neshama are mixed together, and I, who am speaking to you, am comprised of both. I am a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sometimes you catch me in the right mood, I'm the most generous, nice guy you've ever met. Catch me in the wrong mood, and suddenly I'm nasty, I'm selfish, and I'm a lout. The Orcha Siddiquim warns us, he says, when you're fasting, be very careful. Be very careful when you're fasting, because likely you're, you'll have a much shorter temper. What do you mean I'll have a shorter temper? Why should I change? Why should I, be, why should I get angry? I'm angry, I'm furious, I'm... Re- what, what happens? If you've ever studied your own behavior, you'll find that we are very, very mercurial. We'll go from one end to the other, and sometimes I'm generous, sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm patient, sometimes I'm not, sometimes I'm in a good mood, sometimes I'm not in a good mood. And when you begin to study the human, what you begin to find is there are two diverse competing parts. There's me in the middle, there's an Hashemah saying, let's accomplish, let's grow, serve Hashem, do everything for anybody else you can't help, accomplish, do something. And there's the Nefesh Bahami, the animal soul that says, oh, oh, I'm hungry, I want, I want to do for me. I'm in the middle, both voices speak, and the ironic part about being a human being is that I am ever in flux. You see, the two do not remain at the same level. Either the Nefesh Bahami becomes stronger, or the Neshama becomes stronger, but there's a constant battle. One or the other is gaining primacy, gaining dominance. The more you give in to the Nefesh Bahami, the stronger it becomes, and the more you exercise the Neshama, the stronger it becomes but there's an ever-changing balance in man. And Hashem created us that way to give us Bechira, to give us free will. But here's the problem. The problem is there's still a piece missing. You see, let's even say that Hashem put me into this body, and His body has drives and appetites and desires. Very nice. I still will not drink bleach. I still will not cause self-inflicted damage, even if you offer me a lot of money, even if you offer me a lot of temptation, and no matter what you offer me, if I see clearly that it's going to damage me, it's going to destroy me, I won't do it. Why? Because I'm a rational, thinking person. And I'll never do it. So how do you give free will to a person? Free will means it has to be just as easy to go left as to go right. It has to be just as easily to select a life of meaning as to squander your existence. But how do you do that when there's a part of me that sees so clearly I'm here for a few short years, and I'm done my job here, my body's put in the ground, and for eternity, I am what I shape myself into, and I get that. I understand that with absolute clarity. All the temptation in the world is not going to cause me to damage myself, because it's foolish, it's ridiculous, and I would never do it. And this great challenge of how do you give actual, practical, free will to man, is something that Hashem solved with this koa called imagination, dimyon. And if you'd like to know how it functions, I have a very simple example. If you've ever watched a first-year-based medrash guy, an 18, 19-year-old guy, first-year-based medrash, and he decides this Purim is getting drunk. He's going to get drunk. And in fact, he gets good and drunk, that Purim. And you see him out on the street. Hey, Moshe, what are you doing? I'm playing in traffic. I'm playing with the car. Moshe, you're going to get hit by a car. I know, I'm going to get hit by a car. Smack, crack my back. Moshe, you're going to hit by a car to send you to the hospital. I know, crack, smack my back. Then I'll put pins in. I'll go through the metal detector. Ding, ding, ding. Now, wait, stop. You're having a conversation with a person and he clearly understands the results. He's going to get hit. He'll send him to the hospital, put pins in his back, go through the metal detector. So clearly he's rational. So why is he playing in traffic? The answer is he's drunk. And when you're drunk, your vision is distorted. Your mental image isn't clear. You're aware of the ramifications, but they're not real. They're sort of... If you'd like to understand what Dimion does... And Dimyon does exactly that. Imagination is this very powerful force. You see, when I'm reading that story about the pirates and sailing the seven seas, and I'm there, that's because Hashem gave this powerful force of imagination that allows me to see imaginary things as if they're real. And now the human being can see whatever he wants and see it as real. Now the human being can distort the truth. Now the human being can live exactly the life he wants. Why? Because I could distort the picture at will. 
I have the ability to change reality. I have the ability to believe anything I want to believe. As I could believe a fiction and feel it like it's real, I could buy that in my own life. And I could live it somehow knowing the truth deep down, but always squashing it away and having this image in front of me. And if you'd like to understand the human, you have to understand that this is the power of imagination. Imagination allows us to live in fanciful worlds, allows us to see things as if it's real, even though somehow deep down we know it's not real, and allows us to do things that makes absolutely no sense if we were logical, sane, and rational. If you spoke to Moshe the next day, when he woke up with the headache, and you told him, you know what you did yesterday? No, what you do? And you show him a videotape and playing, what's I doing? I was crazy, what's wrong with me? And it wasn't crazy, he was drunk. In this state that we're in, we are rational, well thought out, but we're able to create incredible amounts of fanciful, imaginative realities. First of all, I'll never die, I'll be young forever, and this is okay. And this is exactly the answer to the tznua. Would you like to know how a modest, pious woman could believe that it's permitted? The answer is, you have to understand, the Torah understands under your circumstance, under your conditions. I'm sure Hashem recognizes the stress you're under. I'm sure Hashem would forgive you, it's not a big deal, don't make a big deal of it. Because the power of imagination is so powerful that you can paint a picture and believe it to be real. And even though you know the truth, you could buy into this image and buy into this fiction and believe it, feel it as if it's real. And I believe that's the answer to the Tznuah. If you've ever read a book or you've ever gone to the theater and been pulled into the story and you feel yourself crying or you feel your heart beating and you're watching an imaginary state taking over you. That's a microcosm of what happens in our real world. In our real world, we believe these lies, we believe these stories, and now the human being has actual free will. Why? Because if I decide to follow my desire, I now make it no longer forbidden. It's not that this is wrong and despicable and heinous. Quite the opposite. This is good. This is proper. And you'll find this time after time, and that's exactly the power of imagination. And that's the answer to the Tznuah. But remember what Rashi taught us. Rashi said, No adulterer will ever commit adultery until Torah teaches them that it's permitted. But that means no adulterer, whether they're pious or the opposite. So the pious person you told me, I get it. And the pious person, the imagination is so powerful that she could believe the lie. He could believe that story. He could paint the picture. But I have a much simpler question. Imagine the person doesn't care. She's a prutza. He doesn't care about the Torah. What does he need the hetta for? What do you mean no single adulterer will ever commit such an act until the Yetzirah teaches him it's permitted? The Yetzirah doesn't have to teach him it's permitted. I don't care. I don't care about the world to come. I don't care about God. I'm doing what I want. Why do I need that more hetta? And if you'd like to understand this, I think if we dig in a little bit deeper, we'll understand a more fundamental aspect to this feature called imagination. In the 1930s, there was a notorious gangster. He was called Two-Gun Crowley. He was also called Two-Gun Crowley, the cop killer. The New York City Police Commissioner called him the most evil, heinous individual he ever met. He said he would kill at the drop of a feather. In any case, Two-Gun Crowley fought his final gun battle in the west side of Manhattan. He was holed up in his apartment on the west side, and he was having a gun, a shootout. <clears throat> 10,000 people were watching from the streets, from various <clears throat> surrounding buildings, and the New York City Police Department were trying to shoot him down. <clears throat> Finally, he got shot in the chest. They broke in from the roof, the roof into his apartment, and he found him slumped over his desk, and apparently he had just written his last will and testament. And this is what <clears throat> the letter said. Drenched in his blood, the letter said, under my coat lies a lonely heart, but a good heart, a heart that would do no man any harm. And he signed it with his name. Now I want to explain to you how he ended up in that apartment. A few hours earlier, he was in Central Park, in his car, his car was parked, and a policeman on foot asked him for his license. He could have easily driven away. This is the 1930s, and there's no radar, there's no <coughs> communication systems. He would have been gone and free. But why take any chances? He reaches in, but instead of pulling out his wallet, pulls out a gun, shoots the policeman, with, empties his revolver, jumps out of the car, pulls out the service revolver of the policeman, adds a few more bullets for good measure, 
jumps back into his car and drives away. That was a good heart, a lonely heart, a heart that would do no man any harm. Now interestingly, our story doesn't end there. Tugun Crowley, although he was unconscious when he was shot, was still alive. They took him to the hospital, and they operated, and he survived, and he stood trial. And he stood trial for murder, and he was sentenced to the electric chair. On the way to the electric chair, he was overheard saying these words, This is what I get for defending myself. An innocent man to his death. Now, you may assume that he was psychotic, some kind of deviant, some kind of... I'd like to share with you that that mindset is not just common, it's absolutely pervasive. In the very, very important book that is a must-read, Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, he described that he was having a correspondence with the warden of Sing Sing. Sing Sing in its day was the, the maximum security prison, and these were evil people. And the warden of Sing Sing told him, not a man in my prison is guilty. Every one of them has a reason, everyone has a story why he should, shouldn't be here, why he's really innocent. And this seems to be, in the criminal mindset, a certain reality. I'm not wrong, I'm innocent, I'm proper. As a matter of fact, everyone else would also do these kinds of things, except they're not as bold as I, they're not as brave, whatever it may be. But I'd like to share with you, this is not something that's indicative of a criminal mindset. Every one of us have this, because this is a huge part of what we know as free will. I got to experience this in a very real way as a high school Rebbe. There was a string of Genevas of thefts in the dorm. Somebody apparently was going around stealing stuff, going into guys' drawers, going into rooms, taking stuff. And it was ongoing for a while, and they couldn't find who the person was. And finally, after a good long time, they identified who the fellow was, they caught him red-handed, and it turned out to be a fellow in my shear. But here was a perplexing part of it. He was a really good guy. I was very fond of him. He got along very well with the fellas and the shear and the guys in the school, very popular, and I didn't get it. So I sat down to talk to him, and I sort of was like just trying to understand what his mindset was. And I guess at a certain point I asked him sort of like what, what motivated him to do this. So he said to me, Rabbi, you have to understand, everybody has money. <clears throat> this guy, his parents give him money. This guy has a job. This is how I, I, this is how I make my money. But he was serious. He was serious, and he meant it. He was not delusional, not insane, not psychotic. He was human. And we human beings have this incredible ability to create fanciful mindsets, create entire strategies, entire explanations, entire philosophies that explain what we do as right, good, and proper. Would you like to understand why the prutza, the person who doesn't care about the Torah, needs a more heter? Because no human being can ever do anything wrong. There's a part of the human that's so holy, so proper, so noble, that it can't possibly do anything wrong. There's an ashama within the person. And then the ashama cries out, how could you harm another human being? How could you take something that doesn't belong to you? And the only way the human being could have free will is if Hashem invested this force called imagination into the person, and now I can create entire fanciful, delusional worlds that feel real. And much like I could read a book and feel like I'm on the, I'm a pirate on the seven seas, I could believe exactly what I want to say to myself. And this is not stealing. Everybody has a job. I'm just a lonely man trying to defend myself. And as odd as it sounds, this is the human being. And I believe there are two very discreet lessons for us to learn from this. Number one, the greatness of the human. Then in reality, the human being has been created in a way that he's so perfect and so holy that he can't possibly do anything wrong. And therefore the only way that Hashem can give him actual free will is to create this delusional system, the system of imagination that allows him to believe what he wants to believe. But that's the second chiddush, the second point that's equally important to understand, the power of imagination. And the power of imagination is so powerful that it deludes us, it fools us, and it feels so real. And it feels 100%. And if you don't believe that I'm correct, just look back at any time you ever got into a fight with any person. I guarantee you were 100% right, and that person was 100% wrong. Now folks, I've been there time after time, countless times, in so many different situations. And this person says this, this person says that, 
And it's clear that they're not even talking to each other, but each one believes their story so vividly, so powerfully, and believes their version of the truth so acutely that they can't even hear the other side. And if it weren't for the fact that I, too, am a human being, I would say they're insane. But once you study yourself, and you realize that I, too, do it, and the minute I have a vested interest, and the minute I have an agenda, it blinds my vision, and suddenly my clear mental acuity is obscured, and I get confused, I get very, very caught up in things, and suddenly, as brilliant as I might be, as much as I clearly see things, I can no longer see it. Now, we live in interesting times. We live in times when people believe exactly what they want to believe, and we see it every day, all day, to an extent that's hard to even discuss. And I don't even want to discuss the current events because they're so, excuse my expression, sickening, that I don't even really want to go there. But you don't have to go very far to have discovered the victim generation. There is not a human being today who is not a victim. My parents were abusive. My spouse, he's a horror. It's all because of my upbringing, all because of my nature. I have ADD, can't hold me responsible. I have anxiety. Listen, I can't be, you know, I have a temper. But I want you to understand something. There's there's an acute difference between making an excuse and being an excuse. If you have a temper... And you say, I lost my temper. You're making an excuse. Okay, I'm not saying it's great, but you understand I'm a rational human being in control of my behavior. And I have a flaw, I have a weakness. That's making an excuse. But when I am an excuse, when the entity of me has to be understood as someone different, I'm a victim, I'm a minority, I'm oppressed, and therefore I can't be held accountable, can't be held responsible you've just, not just devalued the human race, you've just cut away any opportunity of human being to grow, to become. Morality doesn't exist, responsibility doesn't exist, and the world at large is headed in a way that's very, very frightening, and therefore I don't want to discuss it. But let's talk about us. Let's talk about us sane and rational people who don't buy into that. I'd like to share with you an interesting story. For many, many years, on the shelf in my study, on that wall over there, was a gold-plated frame, which I considered my graduate certificate from the School of Musser. Now, if you came into my office at the time, you would not recognize it. In fact, it looked a little strange. You might not even know what it was, but I'll tell you the story behind it, and then you'll understand what it was. Quite a number of years ago, I was driving, and apparently I was going over the speed limit, and I saw the flashing lights behind me. I pulled over, and the police, the highway police officer came by, I rolled down my window, obviously both hands on the steering wheel, and and he said, son, you know why I stopped you? I said, officer, I apologize. I was going over the law. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I should not have done it. I apologize. There's no excuse. And he said, what? I said, officer, I apologize. I was going over the speed limit. I should not have been doing it. There was no excuse. His jaw almost dropped. He stared at me. He looked at me. He turned around, walked back to his car, a few moments later, came back and handed me a certificate, a citation for speeding, and he said to me, please don't do it again. I said, thank you, officer, and I drove off. I took that citation, put it in a gold frame, and put it on my shelf. And you know why? Because it took me 20 years of learning Musser to say the words, I was wrong, and there is no excuse. And if you think those are easy words to say, <clears throat> I give you a little challenge. The next time you get into a fight, and you blew it, you made a mistake. Maybe it was your brother, maybe it was your sister, maybe your father, maybe your mother, maybe your spouse, especially if it's your spouse. So let's imagine that you blew it, you made a mistake, and you said something callous or whatever it may be, and it was wrong. Now here's the interesting part. You know you were wrong. Your spouse knows that you were wrong. And you know that she knows that you were wrong, And you know that she knows that you know that she was wrong. So everybody there knows that you were wrong. Try saying these words. I was wrong. You'll gag. My teeth start to chatter. I mean, I I wasn't right. It wasn't as good as... I I, I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I apologize. And they're all okay. I was wrong. I was wrong are such difficult words for us human beings to say. And would you like to understand why? 
because I can't sit with those words. There's a part of me in Hashem that comes from right under the Kisei covered, right from under Hashem's throne of glory, and that part of me cannot tolerate doing anything wrong. Why? Because that part is so great, so holy, so pure, that it can't possibly do something wrong. And for me to admit the words, I did something wrong, is painful. And I'll come up with all kinds of rationalizations, all kinds of stories, all kinds of excuses. Anything but say the words, I was wrong. And now I want to teach you one of the great secrets of life. And folks, this is a big deal secret and will make such a difference in every one of your relationships. And again, especially in marriage. I'm going to teach you what I call the art of the apology. Most people, in fact, I think the vast amount of people, most people on the planet do not know how to apologize. I will teach you how to apologize. Once you know this, it's still going to be very, very difficult to do, but I guarantee it will help you tremendously. How to apologize. You say these words, I was wrong. I feel terrible for what I've done. There's no excuse for what I've done. I feel terrible. And then you, excuse my expression, zip it. You don't say another word. No but. Nobody have to understand. I didn't really mean it. I should. You have to. Mm-mm. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I feel terrible. There's no excuse and nothing else. Now I'd like to explain to you why everybody, everybody, and I'm in that everybody group as well, blows the apology. See, watch what happens. <clears throat> Again, let's go into marriage because it's the easiest way to see it. If you're married, great. You'll understand. If not, you'll Mitzvahem will understand it <clears throat> sometime soon in the future. But here's what happened. I said something callous, okay? And I hurt my wife. Now, obviously, I didn't do it on purpose. I'm not a nasty guy. I'm not a mean person. And clearly, I didn't mean it, or I didn't understand it to be that hurtful. Let's assume I came late. I came late, and she was waiting outside, and she was cold. Certainly, I didn't intend to hurt her. Certainly, I didn't mean it. So she comes in, and she's pretty hurt. After all, how could a husband leave her in the cold? And so she comes in, I say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I feel bad. Really feel bad. She said, you don't write, you should feel bad. You know how cold it was? Now here's the problem. She's hurt emotionally. I don't think I've done anything wrong. I wouldn't have done it. And I see that she's hurt, so I apologize. And then when I say I'm sorry, she says, you're done right. You know how hurt I was? And she ratchets up the emotion and makes sure that I fully understand how much it bothered her, how much it hurt her, because obviously I wouldn't have done it if, if I understood it. And so she wants to express herself and, and let me know clearly. Now that's the moment of danger. Because the minute she does that, I want to make it better and say, listen, it's not that I don't value, not that I wanted to hurt you. I had an important le- point to go. I had to, to be here. I had to. And what I think what I'm doing by the excuse is making it better. What I'm actually doing is explaining that what I did was right. You see, the apology says I was wrong. The but says... I was right. You see, I was wrong in being late, but there was a good reason for me being late because X, Y, and Z. Now, even though I'm saying the but because I want to make it better, I want to make her realize that I didn't mean to hurt her, what she invariably will hear is, but what I did was okay, good, right, and proper. And don't ruin a good apology with a but. You say the words, I was wrong, I'm sorry, there's no excuse, and then you zip it. Don't ruin it with the butt. And the minute she says the, you know, how, you know how cold it was, you know how upset it was, and I feel that temptation to justify, to rationalize with the butt, forget about it. I had a couple who were having a very serious time with Shalom Bias. And it was clear that things were in, in a bad way. I made this guy, I told him, you must say the words, I was sorry, there's no excuse. I made him say it 100 times. One, not, not 10, not 20, 100 times. She went on and on, 100 times, and after the 100th time, it changed. Because you see, invariably we ruin it with the butt. And the reason we ruin it with the butt is because A, we're very uncomfortable with it, and we don't want to make them feel badly, we want to explain to them we really didn't mean it, but all it does is destroys the apology. I think there's a tremendous lesson to learn from this Rashi. The first lesson is, when Rashi tells us, no, no adulterer will commit adultery unless the Yetzirah tells him it's permitted. Why is that? Because that's the greatness of the human being. The human being is so great that I cannot do anything wrong. Even if I tell you I don't care about the Torah, even if I tell you I don't care about any halacha, it's not true. 
If I knew that this was wrong, I never could do it. And the only way any human being can do anything wrong is if they have this incredible, fascinating ability to create fanciful worlds and believe it to be true. The reason Hashem gave us His imagination is because that's what allows for practical free will. An angel has free will, but it sees things with such clarity that it can't be credited with the choice. Of course it chooses what's right and good, it's proper, but it saw clearly in front of it. To give the human being credit of actually making the choice, it has to be just as simple for me to go this way, and just as simple for me to go that way. The fact that I have a nefesh bahami, the fact that I have desires and drives are true, but I have clarity of vision, and I see the results of those behaviors. I do not do heroin. And you're not going to convince me to do heroin. <clears throat> no matter how great it is, you tell me it is, no matter how wonderful, I'm not doing heroin. Why? Because I'm not stupid. I'm not going to subject myself to that. But it's great. It's so tempting. It's so alluring. I don't care. I'm not doing it. And taking in a shama and putting it into a body, <clears throat> even if you mix it with the nefesh of Bahami, <clears throat> the human being would not have free will. Why? Because part of me sees things with such clarity. I don't drink bleach. I don't put my hand in fire. I don't self-inflict damage upon myself. To allow for actual free will, Hashem gave us this power of imagination. Imagination is his ability to believe things, fanciful things, and to believe that I'm innocent. Even though I just shot a policeman in cold blood, even though I gunned him down, I'm an innocent man defending myself. The world is out to get me, and you have to understand where I'm coming from. And if you'd like to see the power of imagination, just look at the criminal element, but just look amongst ourselves. Everybody has a story, everybody has an excuse, and again, the first primary reason for it is because that's the greatness of a human being. A human being can't do anything wrong. I can never live with myself. The reason why it's so hard for me to apologize is because there's a part of me that says, how could I admit doing something wrong? How could you have done it? If that was wrong, why'd you do it? I can't, I can't, I can't stand that. That disconnect. There's such a tremendous internal conflict that I can't even admit the words, and that's why saying I was wrong is so difficult. This powerful force of imagination Hashem gave us because to allow for free will. And he, even if a person says, I don't care about the Torah, I don't care about anything, he cannot commit a sin until the Yetzirah tells him it's permitted. And that's one Chiddush, the tremendous holiness of a human being, and a tremendous desire to do what's right. But even if you have a person who's proper, right, and holy, a person who's a tznu, a person who follows the full Torah, how could the Yetzirah possibly tell him her, that it's permitted? And the answer is that's a power of imagination. Imagination is so powerful that it can take total inventions and make it feel real. And we are much like Moshe, that 18-year-old drunk on the first Purim, where I can't see beyond my nose. And I could say the words, I'm going to get hit by the car, but I don't feel it. It's not real. And this power of imagination is so powerful that we could create entire fantasies and believe it and even though we know it's Sheker Mukhlat, it's a total lie, we buy into it, we believe it, and that's ultimately the greatness of human. Hashem created us in perfect balance. And with a Neshoma that's so pure that it only wants to do what's right and proper, but balancing agents against it, the Nefesh Bahami, an animal soul, imagination to allow me to do exactly what I want to do, to believe exactly what I want to believe, and now the human being has free will. And I want to close with one last story, because I think it well encapsulates this concept. Rabbi Ari Levine is known as the Tzaddik in our times, and the book by that name is a book that's well worth reading. In any case, Rabbi Ari Levine lived in Israel before the state of Israel was declared, and he was really a Tzaddik. He would go to the prisons every, certainly every Shabbos and often, to visit Jewish prisoners there. Now, interestingly enough, he became good friends with many of the members of the Haganah. He was a good friend of Begin's. He was a good friend of many because they were arrested by the British and imprisoned. <clears throat> but Rabbi Levine was not a political figure in any sense. He would visit the prisons because that's what a Jew should do, <clears throat> visit poor Jews who were in trouble in difficult straits. In any case, <clears throat> every week, Rabbi Levine would visit this one man, and this man was totally not religious. Not religious at all. And often Rabbi Levine would ask him, would you like to put on tefillin? Do you want to <clears throat> maybe make a bracha? Nothing, nothing. And one day, the man says to Rabbi Levine, I want to put on tefillin. I want, to, I want you to bring me a pair of tefillin. <clears throat> Next time you come, I want to put it on. Rabbi Levine brought him a pair of tefillin. <clears throat> and the man took it, and Rabbi Levine went to put it on the man's arm. And the man said, no, put it on my other arm. Rabbi Levine said, but we, we put it on the, on, on, on the left arm. That's what we do. I know, but this arm I can't put it on. 
This arm killed a man. I can't put it on this arm, put it on the other arm. What happened was this man got into a fight with a neighbor, and he killed the man with this arm, and that arm can't wear tefillin, so Rabbi Levin put the tefillin on the other arm, put it on the head, and he did the mitzvah. Now folks, I want to share with you an interesting observation. No arm ever jumped off the table and stabbed a man. It doesn't happen. Arms don't kill men. Men kill men. He may have used that arm, but it wasn't the arm. So what do you mean this arm can't wait till you killed the man, not the arm? The answer is there was such a powerful sense of guilt, such a powerful sense of I killed the man, that he had to put it on, the arm did it. That way I didn't do it. It absolves somehow and takes it away from me. Now I can live with it. The human being is so pure, so holy, I can never do anything wrong. I have entire rationales, entire philosophies, entire stories. I can make up inventive and imaginative things all to excuse what I've done because that's the greatness of human. A human being cannot do anything wrong. That's the power of imagination and we have to be aware of it so that we could actually use it for our good and not be swayed by it, not be destroyed and pulled into it. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. Um, uh, thoughts... If you have questions, please feel free to raise your hand and ask. If you're shy, you can um, type it in. We do have some people emailed in questions. By the way, anytime you can, during the week, if you have a question on any topic, you're more than welcome to email it to Rebbe, R-E-B-B-E at theshmooz.com. You're more than welcome to email it in, and I'll gladly take it. If you have a question, you're more than welcome to please raise your hand now, and I'll take it live. If you have no questions, then that's great. I'll, I'll make a bracha. I'll drink my tea. Bracha Adunai Now, whether you should say Amen or not is a very good question. I've had that question for a long time, and it would seem the answer would be if you're in the same time zone and it's instant, maybe you could say Amen. Um, if you're if you're hearing this delayed, you certainly can't. But um, I don't know. You have to ask a posik. I'm not sure. I've never gotten that clear. Rabbi Vadya Yosef discusses it when his chuvas. Um, it's a little complicated. But anyway. Other questions, other than, other than whether you, do you say amen when you hear a shear? Again, normally you don't. Certainly if it's recorded, you certainly would not say amen. If it's live and you're in the same time zone, so it's really actual live, it could be you do. It could be the, 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 the position to say you don't is because you're not hearing my voice. You're hearing an electrical reproduction. The microphone picks up sound waves translated into electrical impulse, and that electrical impulse on your end is then retranslated by your speaker into a sound. So you're not hearing a voice, you're hearing an, a reproduction of a voice. So that's why you can't be Yotze Tkiya Shofar, you can't be Yotze Megillah, normally via telephone, etc. But in any case, it's, a, it's an interesting point. Um, okay, if anybody has questions, please feel free to ask. Um, okay. Um, does giving angels such clear vision take away any part of their free will? Okay, so the answer is no. Free will means I could or I could not. An angel has absolute free will as we have free will. And the difference between an angel and us is not the free will aspect, it's the cloudiness of the vision. It's the obscuring, obscuring of, the, of the sight. See, an angel has absolute free will, much like I have free will to put my hand in a fire. I could do it. I could drink bleach. I absolutely could. Now, the fact that I wouldn't do it doesn't mean I can't do it. In fact, sometimes you hear people do ridiculous and stupid things. I, I could do it. That's absolute free will. But absolute free will will not help the human being. Because Hashem created us in a position where our choices shape us into who we're going to be. And the only way I can be credited with making that choice is if I really struggled. If real, I really could have gone this way, could have gone that way. And I really chose this way. Only then am I credited with it, because only then is it actually my uh, my choice. <clears throat> um, okay, someone says I should recommend a certain book. I've never read the books. So I can't recommend it. I apologize. Um, okay, so, okay, I appreciate that, but, uh, okay, I can't, uh, again, I've never read it, I'm sure it's good, Rabbi Kiva Tatz writes many books, and they're excellent, I, I would not have read that book, so I, I really, I'm sure it's fine, because I'm sure everything, Rabbi Tatz is uh, brilliant, and he's a Tamachacham, and a wonderful person, so I'm sure it's very good, um, okay, if you have any questions, feel free to, ask. oh wow, no questions, that's awesome, nobody's questions, not on this topic, not on any topic, that's great. Okay, not even grace at tzaddik, nothing. Mommy, nothing. Wow. Hi, Josh. You got the floor, Josh. Do you have the floor? I think you do. Yeah, you do. Hey. I got the, I got the floor. I got okay. the floor. Howdy. 
Shalom, Rabbi. Shalom. Thank you so much. Since nobody else was asking, then I thought I would ask. Go for it. Thank you so much for the schmooze tonight. It was awesome. Wow. Fantastic. Um, so I wanted to ask about, uh, there's like uh, Nefesh Bahami, but then I realized that there's something else that you spoke about in your series called The Fight, and mm-hmm. it's called Nefesh Asekli. Yep. And I was curious, just kind of broadly, where does that... I mean, right. this is a big question, but yeah, like, okay. where does that fall in with the Nefesh right, right. and then... Right, okay. Nefesh yeah. is is an, a term. See, different Rishonim use different terms to describe the same thing. See, the Neshama um, is often called the Nefesh Asikli. The Neshama is is a much broader term. The Neshama refers to parts that I'm aware of and parts that I'm not aware of. Um, it refers to um, parts that I'm not... that are well beyond my conscious understanding of me. The Nefesh Sikli is what we normally refer to the good part of me that's the Neshama that surfaces that's the that's it's the voice inside me that knows what's right good and proper. It's you see it's a little complicated but the Neshama has a number of parts to it and a number of parts I'm not even cognizant of. So for instance let's talk about Shabbos. Shabbos is something called the Neshama, neshama Yasera, a extra part of your Neshama that joins you. Now you're not aware of it you don't understand it and it does things in the upper world that affects you in sort of a, a <clears throat> glowing sort of sense. It's sort of in a, a sort of behind-the-scenes sort of way, but in your conscious mind, you're not aware of it. <clears throat> the expression nefesh asikli refers to sort of the part of the neshama that's above the surface, the part that we relate to, the part that we you know identify clearly and understand. The neshama is bigger than that, <clears throat> but the nefesh asikli is like the surface part, the part that I actually you know, relate to, I recognize, I understand, that's a part of me that tells me to what's good, right, and proper. So really, for most, in most circumstances, the, the two expressions are interchangeable, but if you technically want to know the, the difference, again, the neshama is much broader and bigger. Never just sickly is that part that I'm aware of, the conscious part of the neshama. Is that, explain it? If you get wow. it, if you get it, that's great because so, I don't understand it. So hopefully you do. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't. I don't understand anything. Yeah, to be good. honest with you, I'm trying the, my best. Though we're in the same but, boat. Um, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, like the neshama, if we're looking at it, it's like um, like the overall. Like that's the big. That's the big. Uh, like like a circle. Like that's exactly. the whole thing. Neshama, exactly. right? Yep. 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 And then inside the uh, neshama, there's the. Nefesh Bahami and the Nefesh Asikli. Are they well, even? Like, is there an even uh, amount of... Well, so, both? see, the Nefesh Bahami, I'm sorry to interrupt, but the Nefesh Bahami is not inside the Neshama. <clears throat> Nefesh Bahami oh. is in the body. <clears throat> it In the operating eye, it mixes in. But it's not part of the Neshama. You see, <clears throat> the Neshama is it's everything pure and holy. <clears throat> Nefesh Bahami is another Nefesh, another um, entity. Now, the two mix in terms of um, I am speaking to. I have these great slides that, that I never show anybody because I... I do these things, I think, for me. But I have these great slides that wow. demonstrate the. Yeah, I, sometimes I wonder That's why I do like these things. <laughs> yeah, like, I, seriously. So like, it, so, like, it's like two different circles. So there's right. like there's a circle that's neshama, and then inside the circle of neshama, there's um, nefesh sekli, mm-hmm. and then there's like another, if I'm looking at it like as the circles that we're, what we're discussing, then there's another circle that's nefesh right. abahami, but the nefesh abahami only exists with the body. Exactly. Is that correct? Exactly. Now, the I who am speaking to you am sort of overlaid of both. So that's why sometimes I want this, sometimes I want that, sometimes I, I'm, I'm like all confused. <clears throat> when my body dies, the Nefesh Bami evaporates. And I, with absolute clarity, <clears throat> remember every event in my life. Now I recognize the consequence of what I did, what I did great or the opposite. But now there's nothing obscuring my vision, nothing blocking. The Nefesh Bahami evaporates, it's no longer there. And I, in my absolute clarity, live in that state forever. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it's, again, I, I highly recommend that. Um, did I ever send you that, the Musarvad, the, the, that's a four-part, uh, I mean, that's for 24 parts. And the first four, Prakim and Masil Sharm, I, I went through this, a lot of stuff in depth. Um, I don't me, think I ever seen that yet. All right, send me an email. I'll uh, if you. Well, what page are you up to in the uh, in the ten really dumb mistakes? Uh oh. Uh, we're just we're we're where we left off. I'm being honest with you. Um, haven't done your homework. <laughs> I know it's really I haven't done your homework. Really, I know. <clears throat> no, make the excuse now. But Rabbi, you have to understand. But but come on. Go. No, there's no excuse. <laughs> I was wrong. I was wrong. There's no <laughs> excuse, <laughs> and I feel terrible. <laughs> 
Great, it's great. No, okay. sure. <laughs> One more thing though. Yeah, yeah. Is that is the okay, so you talked about uh temper, right? Yeah. Is the temper inside of the circle of the Nefeshabahami? Yeah. That's a Nefeshabahami. In the Nefeshabahami there are various forces. There's desire, there's anger. Most of the Midos, certainly the bad Midos and bad character traits are in the Nefeshabahami. And you'll find them in the animal kingdom. You'll find the lion, rawr, the ferociousness, the aggressiveness. The, those are character traits of the Nefesh Abami, of the animal soul. And it's learning to control those or learning to harness those that is one of the secrets of, of real growth in life. Yes, and so how does like a, a, a man like me who has so much Nefesh Abahami, uh, like not allow himself to reach the point of the temper? Right, so welcome to the real world. In the real world, you and I and pretty much every other uh, occupant of this planet are real live human beings who constantly struggle. And constantly struggle with many, many different issues. It might be anger, it might be arrogance, it might be jealousy, it might, whatever it is, we all got stuff. And the secret is to work on it. Now, how to work on it, there are systems, there are quite a number of shoes once in anger or jealousy, you know, there are systems that Chazal gave us to work on it, but it's a constant project. You, as a human being, are a work in progress. Until you leave this earth, you're here for one purpose, to grow, to change, and the biggest part of that is changing your your nature, your desires, your anger, your jealousy. That, that's, you know, Tikkun Amidus, the repair of character. So that's that's the biggest part of your Hashem. And that's, uh, yeah, well, welcome to the real world where we're all human beings and it's the struggle and that's the battle. And that's what we're challenged with, growing. And the growth is mighty slow and incremental. It's not like I suddenly decide anger is bad and I'm, I'm gone. It, it's slow. you got to work on it, work on it, and make small progress, and hopefully eventually you get better at it, better at it, and eventually you hopefully get to a different point. Yeah, because it's like Hillel, you know? I think of Hillel. Right. And, and like that whole story and like how he's like, just like the kid was just like, okay. you know, asking all those questions. Right. So, Josh, do you run? Um, yeah, I, I run. Okay, good. Run and walk and all that. Good. Yeah, yeah Josh, let me, t- let me tell you something. There are human beings I know who run 26 miles in under two hours. 26 Whoa. miles in under two hours. They're called what? elite marathon runners. That's the top marathon runners in the world now. <clears throat> it's slightly under two hours to run 26. Now, if you would try that, you'd break. I would break. I used to run. I can't even think about that. We're not talking seven-minute miles for 26. We're not talking six-minute miles. We're talking speeds that are beyond description for 26 miles. Now, obviously, if you're an elite marathon runner, and that's all you do, you reach that level. But that doesn't get me depressed because that's not me. Meaning Hillel is Hillel. We're not going to be Hillel. And it's good to have like a goal, you know, dream one day. But after two sets of goals, one is the ultimate goal, but then the slowly step-by-step as I get there. So you're right. We're not... Hello, we're not supposed to be hello, but it's important to have that as a vision. But we may, may not be marathon elite runners, but we'll, you know, I'm still working out. I'm still getting in shape. You know, it helps me as, as I am. All right? Thank you. Okay, thank you Josh. So much. Okay, good. Thank you. thank you. Okay, good. Okay, folks, I thank you all for joining. I hope to see you next week. I wish you all a good Shabbos. And again, if you're around in the East Coast starting this Monday uh, at 7 p.m., Monday night broadcast on 6.20 a.m. on the a.m. dial, 6.20 at 7 p.m. Monday night. There'll be a schmooze uh, live there. Okay, thank you. Have a good Shabbos.